We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. So if you have your Bibles, please open up. And if you have uh, um, a device, please open up. And if you have the, the app, you can open it up in the app and follow along there, along with the, uh, the presentation and, and the, other, the other verses that go along with that. Starting at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, talking about Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed it was for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of the word, Father, that it would, it would stir us, Father, that it would challenge us, and Father, that we would see you more clearly and praise you and give glory to you more dearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Josh. How cool was that? Seeing three families, three beautiful uh, young people who are, uh, whose parents are committing to raise them in a Christian home with Christian values uh, in a world that is just going mad. How cool is that? That we've got people making a stand before God and before a group of people, a big group of people to say, look, we are going to raise our children this way. I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, F.B. Meyer wrote a story about two German mountaineers who went to climb uh, the Matterhorn, which is a huge mountain in the Alps, and uh, they hired three guides for their ascent, and they roped themselves together. So there was a guide and one of the travelers, a guide, a traveler, and a guide. And uh, they'd gone a little way up what was a really steep and slippy and treacherous part of the mountain, when the, the guy at the bottom slipped and fell, and he was held up because the other four guys above him uh, were, uh, had not slipped. They were all rocked together, and they were fine. But then uh, the next one slipped, and he pulled down the other two. So there's four guys swinging off the side of this mountain, and one guy at the top who was safe and secure, and uh, he was the only one able to stand firm. It was the first guide, the one going up the mountain first, because he held his ground. All the men beneath him regained their footing and eventually got to where they were intending to go. And uh, F.B. Meyer concluded this story with a spiritual application. He said, I am like one of those men who slipped, but thank God I am bound in a living relationship to Christ. And because he stands, I will perish. I will never perish. We'll change the story completely. We'll try that again. Thank God I'm bound in a living relationship with Jesus because he stands, I will never perish. That sounds better. What a wonderful image of Christ's quality that is uh, contrasted with 
with our fallen, uh, fallible ways. And because he stands, we will never perish. I should make that really clear. Uh, last week, Jesus was introduced as the guarantor of a better covenant. And uh, at the end of the month, Friday the 31st, we're going to talk a little bit more about covenants. Uh, it's something that it comes up in our uh, Christianese vocabulary quite a lot. Old covenant, new covenant, covenantal this, and covenant, covenant, covenant. Often with very little explanation as to what are we actually talking about. What does it mean? What did it mean? What does it mean? And what will it mean? Uh, so Friday the 31st, we're going to talk about the two covenants that we see in God's Word. Uh, but in verse 22, last week of chapter 7, uh, we saw that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant and that there is a better way of doing things than this Old Testament uh, priestly system. And today, this idea has developed a little bit more through contrasts, by comparing things and by looking at Jesus' qualities and we'll see really why. Why is it dangerous for us to put our future hope in people? People like you, people like me, people like us. And instead, what do we hope in? Our future is based on what? Our confidence and hope for the future. And where do we find hope? So maybe you're here and you're feeling a little bit hopeless. You're going through some stuff and you just don't know how it's going to work out. You seem to be at the end of your earthly rope for dealing with it, for making a way, for finding out how things are going to be, working out how things are going to be. Maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe you're just not sure how the future is going to turn out. Maybe you're not quite as despairing as uh, you wouldn't say that you're hopeless, but you're just not sure what the future is going to be like. You feel a bit blind going forward. And maybe you feel that, that your particular circumstances are so unique. Nobody's ever been through this before. I am the first person in the history of humanity, to ever be dealing with whatever it is you're going through. And that's different for all of us. Anybody else had a week this week? You know what I mean, had a week. You're just quite happy to be here. A few nods. I think most people have had a week, so maybe just a bit, you know, you don't want to admit it. That's fine. I've had a week. And it's good to be here. It's good to be here and get... Return to God's word where our hope for the future is just so unswerving and unchanging. Anyway, so where do we find hope? We're going to look at the priesthood of Jesus. And we're going to look at some contrasts, old to new. It's a very natural thing, isn't it? We want to make a decision between two things. We compare, contrast, maybe you make a list. Maybe you're a list kind of person. I'd like to think I'm a list kind of person. But it's, sometimes it's just too much effort to put that onto paper. I don't know about you guys, but maybe you find yourself in that situation where you make a list, and you make another list in your mind, and then a third part of your mind comes in, starts deliberating between the two. So you've got, you, you're arguing with yourself in your mind, and then a third person jumps in and says, yeah, he's right, you should probably do that. Maybe you should make a list because it'll probably sound a lot less crazy. If I could show you a list that I'd made rather than tell you that, I argue with myself and then pronounce judgment. Anyway, maybe we'll cut that out of the recording as well. People think I'm mad. So the contrast that we're going to see first, read again, verses 23 to 25, and we'll see contrasts old and new. So Hebrews 7, 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, consequently, 
because He continues forever, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So contrast, verse 23, former priests were many in number. Why did we need so many? Why were there so many high priests and such a high rate of turnover? Because they died. Because they're all human beings, like you and like me and like us. They were just regular people. And like you and me, this is kind of sad of just dedicated, like you and me, there will be an end to our earthly life. And the things that we do, the offices we hold, they'll be replaced. New people will come in, just like Old Testament Levitical high priests, of which there were something like more than 300 before the end of the Second Temple era, around the year 70 AD. More than 300 high priests. And he had loads of minions. So we're talking thousands of, of priests doing priestly things and you know, doing priestly stuff. Hundreds, thousands of them. Many, many in number. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. They all died. Therefore, they couldn't continue to serve. So maybe there was a really good one. Maybe he was really godly. Maybe he pointed everybody back to God and it was all great. And then he died. And then the next guy comes along and it's his son, son, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a family thing. And maybe he's not that good. Maybe he's not that into it. Maybe he gives it lip service. And then he dies. And then maybe you get a good one. And you can see the inconsistency that comes with this kind of system where it's father, son, father, son, father, son. But think about it. Would, would you want one guy to live forever if you couldn't guarantee who he was and what he was like? So if you go to churches in the UK uh, where I grew up, especially the Church of England kind, you'll often find a list somewhere in the building, maybe on the wall, uh, of everybody who has taken care of God's church in that place since it was built and consecrated. So, since it was built and, and blessed and set aside as a space for church stuff, churchy stuff. The church that I grew up going to as a boy was built around 1800. So the list would have been quite, uh, quite long. But just imagine that there were only two names on there. And since 1850, there was one guy looking after this church. And that'd be very, very odd, wouldn't it? almost 200-year-old guy looking after the church. And would you, want to go to a, would you want to go to a church pastored by a 200-year-old man? Somebody said, no, I'm going to take that. Probably not. He's probably out of touch with, with life. He's 200 years old. It's a little bit unnatural. It's so well, it's not a bit so unnatural. A change would be needed. Nobody can stay in office that long due to their natural fleshly bodies. But we're all the same. Last week, then, we said that law could not produce godly character and a legal line of descent couldn't guarantee that the guy who stands before you and then stands before God is actually a godly man. If he's just there because of who his dad's 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 dad was, there's no guarantee what he's like. Maybe he wants to be there. Maybe he doesn't want to be there. Maybe he's a godly guy pointing people to the Lord and this future messianic hope. Maybe he's not. Maybe just he enjoys sticking his fork in and taking out his beef. You just, there's, no, there's no way to guarantee that the guy who stands before you, if he's there by legal descent, there's no, no guarantee what he's like. And if you, if you don't believe me, then read First and Second Kings and see what happens 
when people are put in a, a leadership role because of who their family is. Or look at the first 1,500 years, maybe even all of some parts of, or the first 1,500 years of church history. Because when we go by legal descent or claimed rightful succession, it, be, it doesn't guarantee godly character. And I'd go so far as to say that it becomes an idol because you feel like you deserve this. Well, my dad was the guy, so I'm going to be the guy, whether you deserve to be the guy or not. And then you end up fighting about, well, it's my legal right, it's my legal right. It's just, it's, you need lots of guys because they all died. We read, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Many in number. But as we continue, we read, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, Jesus, continues forever. Love that. But he. What a contrast that brings. These people were questionable in character. But, but he. The contrast, the tension between old and new is so it's just there, isn't it? But he, new way of life, sorry, an old way of life that promised much, do this and you will get this. It promises so much. We kind of alluded to it in what we were praying about. It promises so much, that way of thinking, but delivers so little. And this new way of life, a, a new life itself, life abundant he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In verse 24, we see Jesus is singular. 23 says, all these guys, Jesus, but he, one, singular. He holds his priesthood forever due to the power of an indestructible life that we said last week. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's not transient. He's not superseded. Nothing was ever going to or is ever going to come that supersedes, that, that cancels out the way that Jesus does things. There's no improvement. We read last week from the end of the book, the end of God's revealed plan and will to us right now says there is nothing after Jesus as a method of getting to God and salvation. If anybody tells you otherwise, it's just not true. Amen? Nothing to come after him. He's not transient, not to be superseded. He's unchangeable. Like we said, a change in office, you might get somebody there that's unqualified, just not the right person to be there, but in, not so with Jesus. In his holy hands, the office of high priest, permanently secure. He holds his priesthood, as we read, permanently without change. Although he died, his priesthood continues to function because as we're reading God's word his death could not hold him death was not the end of his being through his resurrection he lives forever amen is that is is that not why we are we why we are here his resurrection through his resurrection he lives forever and this is not just something we talk about at Easter you come to church at Easter and you expect the guy who stems up to preach the Bible, preach the Word of God, to talk about Easter. If you go to church on Easter and they don't talk about a resurrection, then you might be, well, you'd be disappointed. Wouldn't you? It's not what you go to church for Easter. It's not what you want to celebrate. But Easter is, not, Easter is not what just gets us through the door. And then we've got to do lots of stuff. Easter is not what gets us into Christianity. 
Easter and what Easter is all about is Christianity in our faith. Without the resurrection, think about this, without the resurrection of Jesus, what do we have that sets us apart from every other faith tradition in the world, past, present, and future? Without Jesus rising from the dead, what do we have that other people don't? Or other people claim to have? But without the resurrection, what do we have that makes us different? And that's what, because that's what it's all about. It's not just something that gets you through the door and then like, oh, now I'm here. I've discovered all this stuff that I've got to do. No. His permanence, his permanence, Jesus' permanence stands in huge and direct contrast to this old way of doing things with the priests. Let's get specific and very, very local. This church, since it's, um, what's the word? Since it's becoming since its birth, has had three full-time pastors, but one permanent head. Are you with me? People come and people go. There will be a Friday, Lord willing, in many, many years when I don't jump up here to preach God's Word, and somebody else will do it. But the church, the organism of the church will be exactly the same because as we've said before, we freely and we willingly acknowledge that Jesus is head of this church. And his permanence is just so in contrast to how transient the world is. With Jesus, nothing has changed, nothing changes, and nothing will change. We read in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He holds his office of priesthood. He still holds that office. He's still our great and eternal high priest. For eternity, he knows and he helps. And we'll get there to this bit. He knows and he helps his people. So the obvious question, at least in my mind, is are, are you one of his people? Are you one of his people? Is your faith, your hope, your trust, your confidence for the future all in Jesus? Or is it just the thing that draws you in to get you through the door? Because it's quite interesting, people talking about this guy that rose from the dead. And then what? Jesus lives forever. He's able to save forever. And verse 25 sets this out, the, the, the big picture of this. Verse 25 is massive. Verse 25 says, Consequently, because he lives forever and holds his office forever, he is able, he can do it, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession before them. So because of this, because he's alive now, and always was, and is now, and always will be, he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. The implication there is that the priests that we're taking as a, as a sign of everything that's gone before Jesus, cannot save us, not even a little bit, not even a little bit, but we read Jesus saves to the uttermost. The unchanging nature of his priesthood means that the salvation he offers is unchanging, permanent, and secure. And as we've touched on in, in previous weeks, how we handle that gift is a different story, but what he offers us is permanent, is unchanging and is secure. And when we read to save the way it's written, it's used absolutely 
There's no question, there's no doubt that Jesus will save, can save, is able to save in the most comprehensive sense. He saves us from all we need saving from. And there are parts of that that are the same for all of us, and there are parts of that that are very, 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 very specific. Things that you need saving from that I don't. And there are things that I need saving from that you probably don't. But there are things that we all need saving from and he saves to the uttermost. It's all of those things. It's our individual struggle, and it's our collective condition as such. Where we read, able to save, to save in the future to the Hebrews, that would make them think of this messianic hope that they had. Everything that they prayed, were taught about, spoke about, sung about, he is able to do. And when we read able we talked about last week uh, the, the power of his indestructible life. And remember, we talked about a very particular Greek word. Anybody remember what that word was? I heard a whisper. I want to take that as somebody remembered. Uh, last week, we talked about this word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, but we don't take that thinking backwards. Jesus doesn't save us because he's dynamite. He doesn't save us with his dynamite personality. It's, it's not what it means. Here we read it's, it's the same kind of word. He is able to save us because of those qualities that we talked about last week. The power of his indestructible, God-filled, miraculous life. And he saves us, as we read, to the uttermost. There's a complete and perfect security of our salvation. It's perfect and complete. There's nothing, 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 nothing for us to add. Nothing we can do nothing we can say, no sacrifices, gifts. There's just there's nothing that we can add to the perfect and complete salvation on offer through Jesus by faith. Amen? Absolutely. But very interesting here, we read, who does he save? Those who come to God through him. And again, we touched on this when, when, when praying. Lots of people want to get there. And lots of people Lots of people are very sincere in trying to get there. But somebody once told me that you can be sincerely wrong. You can do something with right motives. You can want the right things. But you can be sincerely wrong. Those who come to God through him. It tells us who Jesus saves. It means those who abide in the Son have fellowship with the Father. It shows us where we have to come for salvation, it's to God. It's not to each other or groups, whatever. It's to God through him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, He knew, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Sincere or not, dynamite personality or not, huge efforts and sacrifices, or not. No one comes to the Father except through me. And is that not the goal of our Christian life, those who draw near to God through Him? Is that not what we intrinsically and naturally just want to draw near to God? We know that there is something greater than us. How do we get there? How do we experience it? How do we see it? I read this week, it's one thing to come to church. It's another thing to come to God. And it's another thing altogether. It's another thing to come to God through Jesus. It's quite a particular thing. 
it sounds, oh, you've got to tick all these boxes, come to church, come to God, come to God through Jesus. But it's, it, it's, not, it's not difficult, is it? It's faith in Jesus, full stop. We read he makes intercession. It means he gets involved on our behalf. Parents have just stood up before you and said, I'm going to do this for my children. Jesus pleads our cause, pleads the cause of those who draw near to God through him. What a verse. What a, what a message. What a contrast between the old way of doing things and all that Jesus does for us. And it gives us huge hope to know that he prays for us. He gets involved on our behalf that he lives he ever lives to pray for us. What a tremendous encouragement if you feel like you're hopeless. Jesus is praying for you. We read in Luke 22 an example of Jesus' intercession for his people. We read, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. When you have returned to me, strengthen, the, strengthen your brother, strengthen your brethren, Jesus prays to strengthen us in trials, seasons of attack, and against Satan's accusations. And again, verse 25, it's huge. Consequently, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Huge. For us then, where do we want to place our hope, trust, confidence for the future? Infallible, fallen people who, who, who die? or in one who has the, uh, the power of an indestructible life, one who's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, one who always lives to get involved on behalf of his people. What a, what a contrast. Priest doing a job in a certain place for a certain time. Oh, oh Jesus. What a huge contrast. And by contrasting Jesus and the high priest of the day, we, we see then there are huge differences. And as we continue through this text, we see his qualities laid out for us even more. So we read again verses 26 to 27, and we'll see that the priesthood of Jesus is like that of the priests in ways that we need it to be, but it's so different in ways that we need it to be too. So Hebrews 7, 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Where we read, it was indeed fitting, it's not because we deserve it, it's not because we're so cool, we're so good, we're so naturally good, that we need, we, you know, it was, we deserve such a really good uh, priest, high priest. Since we deserve, we deserve a guy who can get us to God like this. It's fitting because he is everything that we need, not because we deserve it. He's everything that we want to be, but are not. He's the kind of high priest who meets our needs perfectly, every time and for all time, not because we deserve it. His character is utterly without blemish, and he's been exalted above the heavens, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above heavens. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, you've magnified your word above all your name. Just think about that. God values his word 
above his own name. The word of God is supreme in his eyes. And what a, what a, what a statement, what a stunning statement shows us how God feels about his word. He holds his word in greater esteem than his very character or name. And then think, how is Jesus referred to? Think about John's gospel. The word became flesh. Jesus, the physical manifestation of God's word. The word of God in a body. Let's make it really simple. He is valued above all. And if we put this into the context of Hebrews, then is there anyone better to represent us than he who is valued so supremely? He was valued and magnified above all else. And you think he is, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That's where his being is now. That's where his person is now. And what do we all carry around what do we have the ability to all carry around on our phones, laptops, tablets, as a print copy? We carry around the Word of God, bound and printed in a Bible. He values His Word above His name. So when we come to the, when we come to the Bible and expect to see ourselves, when we expect to come to the Bible and use it as a manual, but for living our best life now. We're going to be, we're going to be really disappointed because that's not, that's not what it is about. The Bible is a book about Jesus. It's 66 individual books that all tell the story of Jesus, highlighting different elements of his nature and character. It's one unified book that tells a unified story from creation to redemption that shows just how much we need Jesus and that through him is the only way we are ever going to get to God. How are we going to get to heaven? That he is, he is the only way, that he's the truth, that he's the life, and he is our hope. It's not a book about us. It's the word of God. It's written to us for sure. It's given for our benefit, our growth, our, all those things, salvation, all those things for us. But it's not about us. I read this week that some Christians face the danger of forgetting just how central and vital Jesus himself was and is to every aspect of the Christian faith. It's possible to get so wrapped up in theological and logical and practical technicalities or details that Jesus comes into the equation, if at all, almost as an afterthought. And as believers in Jesus, as Christians, we should just glory in passages like this. We should love to read passages where he is just exalted, where we read just how good he is. You know, it should make our hearts sing when we read things about him, about how he is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, and he is with God now getting involved on your behalf. That should, that's what it's all about. Charles Spurgeon said, the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ is a topic that will not interest everybody. It's kind of sad. To many persons, it will seem a piece of devotional rapture, if not an idle tale. And he said, yet, 
there will ever be a remnant according to the election of grace to whom this meditation will be inexpressibly sweet. So, is that us? When we read these passages about Jesus, when we talk about how holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, how exalted above the heavens he is, is that sweet to us? Or is that just some nice stuff that you read at church from the Bible? Do we love to hear about Jesus? Or do we get together and you know, want to talk about other stuff and then at the end you know, pray for 30 seconds in Jesus' name? Or is it all about him? What did this mean for the Hebrews then? Well, it was presenting them with a very, very clear black and white choice, a contrast that could not be clearer. It was showing them the quality of Jesus in a new and improved role that superseded completely their previous way of doing things, that it, that it itself, Jesus and his priesthood, would never be superseded. It was showing them that everything they had been doing, learning, studying, praying, praising, sacrificing, everything in their faith life was pointing towards this man. He is the reality to which they, have, which they all looked. We're going to get there next week. Substance over shadows. He is what they had been looking for. We read in verse 27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The high priest of the day, then even the top guy at the time, offered sacrifices first for his own sins and then other people's, because they were fallen, sinful people too, just like you and me. Since he was sinless, we read Christ didn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. He offered a single sacrifice once for all. He offered himself for human beings, and he didn't need to repeat it. You know the phrase, once and for all? You've annoyed me too many times. I'm going to take those toys away once and for all. That's maybe how I'd use that phrase. But, you know, however you want to use it in your own lives, that's it. It's once and for all. I'm finished. I'm going to do this one time for all time. That's done. If you trace the, the origin of that phrase back, do you know where it gets to? It gets to the cross. It gets to Jesus. So much of our, our language and our lives is traced back when people don't even know it. Anyway, so it might have been shocking to the, to, the, to the Hebrews, the idea that Jesus offered himself, because no high priest would have done that. They would have offered stuff, animals and the like, and then just gone home. Jesus said that he came to offer his life as a ransom for many in Mark chapter 10, and all who have come to Jesus for salvation have found him to be a powerful and sufficient savior. Amen? Everybody that's come to Jesus for salvation has found that he is able to do so to the uttermost. So by way of contrast, looking at his qualities, we've seen that Jesus is the perfect person to represent us before God, the perfect person to intercede for us, the perfect person to carry our hope for the future. And as we get to the end of this passage, verse 28, we see one more contrast in quality of Jesus. We see that men are appointed under law, but they're weak. God's oath appointed Jesus after the law. We read that last week in Psalm 110. 
Jesus who's been made perfect forever. And in, in, in Jesus, God provides for you and for me and for all of us better access to himself than, these, than the Old Testament faithful ever, 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 ever had. People talk about, I wish I could have lived X number of years ago or back in my day, if you're of a certain vintage, you're allowed to say that, or oh, I wish I'd have lived in the 1800s. So life was so much more simple. And you just think, oh, I wish I'd have lived in the Bible times. It would have been so much more simple. Life was so simple. And you just think, what? What are you talking about? You wanted to have lived in a time when you had to do all this stuff perfectly and carry a future hope that somebody might come one day, somebody's going to come one day and take care of it all for you. And now we just look back. We look back to a cross. We look back at the archaeology and the history and we say, yes, this happened. We look back to it. I wish I'd have lived in the time of the Bible. Sure. Verse 28 says, The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who was made perfect forever. We, might be a bit of a downer for some people, we will never be perfect. Let's just put that out there. We will never ever be perfect, yet there is still a way for us to be viewed as such, to be viewed by God as righteous and right and good. But you and me and us are never going to make that happen ourselves. We see the priesthood, that way of doing things contained men who are weak. Priests didn't come for any super race. They were just people. But with a perfect high priest like Jesus, we can approach God with confidence because his character, his eternal character and life guarantees our access. The idea is not here that he, he first became perfect and then became a priest. His nature and his, his, his being, his person was perfect from the beginning. Before what we would call the beginning of time, he came to earth as perfect. He was already perfect when he arrived. His earthly life was just this exhibition of his perfection. And it's, it's, it, the truth is that his, his suffering as a, a human, as a person, as a man, developed in him the experiential knowledge of what we are going through. So he is good enough to take care of our salvation. He is good enough, he is right enough, he's perfect enough, and he has walked as we walk, and he's experienced things that we have experienced. No high priest of the day knew all of your problems Jesus knows, Jesus cares, Jesus is able to fix them, to, to, to walk them with you because he is able and he's good and he's perfect and he's righteous, and indestructible life. But he's walked these things too, just added to that perfection. Can you add to perfection? It just doesn't sound right. He was perfect and he came and he just, even more, even more, even more. So, why is it dangerous to put our future hope in people where do we find hope? Well, like I said, maybe you're here and you're feeling a bit hopeless. Maybe you're just not sure. How do I get through this? Whatever this is. 
Where do we put our energies and confidence? Where do we give our best? Where do we put our first fruits? It's dangerous to put them, hope for the future energies for today into the wrong things because at the core, they are just not eternal. It's quite a, a simple conclusion. Anything into which we put our hope and future confidence is, is just not eternal, is it? Instead, where should it go? It should go, future hope, into a relationship with Jesus, through whom we draw near to God, by which relationship we are saved to the uttermost. And what a tremendous source of hope that is for us, the ultimate source of hope. We've seen uh, through comparing and contrasting the old way of doing things versus the way that Jesus is, is so much greater. There are parts of the Levitical priesthood that point to Jesus but it was all flawed. And we said that if change was not needed, then change would not have happened. We used another big word last week. We said God is not capricious. God just doesn't change his mind because he feels like it. Change happened because change was needed. The end of the book says there's no more change to happen. For us then, today, now, we choose how we relate to Jesus in our minds is he the high priest of a Levitical system or is he the perfect eternal high priest of a new and better covenant that we so desperately need? If we see Jesus just as a method of salvation, a foot in the door, a way of getting saved. How do you get saved? Jesus. That's not, that's not wrong, is it? If, we, if, if that's all we see him as, what we're really doing is we're relating to him like a high priest of a system where you've got to do some stuff. And there, are, there were hundreds of people like that, and it just didn't work. He offers us, Jesus offers us so much more than a way to get saved. So much more than a method of salvation. He doesn't save us and then leave us to our own devices. Because, do you know why? Because we would lose it. We would throw it away. We would mistreat it. We would abuse it. We would misuse it, and that's just not a relationship, is it? We go to him to get saved and then come away. There's no relationship there. Deep down, we are all seeking, all of us, we are all seeking relationship, fellowship, communion with someone. We, we've all got that thing inside us that wants to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Deep down, we know we are not the pinnacle the, the, the tip of the pyramid. There's a part in each of us that knows there is more than us. Think about you know, the modern-day equivalent of the golden calf that we read about in Exodus. Our careers, our marriage, our children, our bank balance, our bucket list of stuff that we want to do, tolerance, affirmation and acceptance. Some of those things are not inherently bad are they? Marriage, for example, is the single most important relationship in your life aside from your relationship with God. Children, being a good parent is a good thing, but that doesn't give us hope for the future, does it, ultimately? Our careers, yes, work hard, be successful, represent yourself, your family, maybe even the country, your savior, represent them well, but not at the expense of relationship with him. 
because it's relationships that we all crave. We are hardwired to want relationships. At the core of our modern-day idols, then, are relationships. If you break them down, all those things we just talked about and anything else that you can put as number one in your life, there's a relationship at the core of it. Take marriage again, for example. We want to work on marriage so much that we forget that marriage is a relationship with three. It's husband and wife and Jesus. Being a parent, you want to break the mold as a Christian parent or just not murder your own children every day. And we put so much energy into that that we forget that God is better able to raise our children than we ever can on our best days with all the treats and bribes and Netflix and ice creams that we can possibly gather. He is still a better parent than us. But we put so much time into that, we, we neglect that relationship. And those things become number one, the number one relationship in our lives. So we can do that, or we can choose Jesus as number one, knowing that the rest will, despite yourselves, fall into place. Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God. And that's got to be the rule in our lives when we're ordering our priorities. Whatever it is you're working through, dealing through, whatever's got you feeling hopeless, above that has to be seeking first the kingdom of God. That's got to be at the top. How do we do that? It's through a relationship with Jesus as our eternal and perfect high priest through whom we draw near to God. When we put all of our energies into developing relationships that are ultimately not number one, everything suffers, including, ironically, the one thing that we are focused on so intently. You try harder, 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 and it doesn't get any better. You move that down to number two, you put your relationship with Jesus as number one, and stuff changes in your life. So, the salvation that he offers through relationship with him and ultimately through him to the Father is a done deal now and forever because of the supreme and all-sufficient sacrifice once and for all in huge contrast, huge contrast to the high priests of the days. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father getting involved on our behalf. What a huge source of hope that is. If he were, if he were, a Levitical priest, he would still be working. We would still be trying to get right with God, get saved. But because he lives, his sacrifice was supreme, sufficient once for all, he's now sitting there making intercession for us. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can add. And there's nothing that we can bring. He saves, he continues to save, and he ultimately will save because of the sacrifice that he made, because of who he is himself. He's now praying for us. He's taking our names to the Father. What a huge sense of hope that is for whatever it is that we're all working through. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us by name. We benefit from his relationship with the Father by being in relationship with him. Ultimately then, we can choose to put our hope for the future, trust, 
for each and every day into people, places, institutions, organizations, or whatever. But it's all, it's all fallible and fallen and just not quite good enough. Or we can take a blessed assurance, a confidence for the future that's rooted in something that is perfect, no, in someone that is perfect. We can put our future confidence in a, into a relationship with Jesus. Finally, a study done in the 1970s said that 90% of people who fail in their careers fail because they cannot get along with people. No relationship leads to no success. Through looking at the contrasts and the qualities of Jesus, we've seen that this, that is the relationship that brings us ultimately success. And by success, we mean salvation. We mean relationship with God the Father. We mean the abundant life that we are made to have. And that is where we find hope in a relationship with Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we're going to take a minute, just a personal prayer, and I'm going to invite the worship team up as we do. And uh, I want us to think about personally, just for a minute, in our busy individual lives, how important is our own individual relationship with Jesus.